the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is, and a good morning to you. <laughs> I am starting this show, and I am starting this day <clears throat> with a chuckle. Uh, I wish I could share it with you um, visually, but this is radio. It doesn't work that way. So I will share it with you uh, the best I can verbally. It is uh, eight minutes after the hour, nine, at nine o'clock on this Tuesday, the 10th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord, 2020. And somebody just sent this to me, and I just, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I am not one to give in to the hysterics of coronavirus. I do not want people freaking out. I do find it very irresponsible for the media to perpetuate all of the fear. Uh, I think there is, an, there is a, an agenda to that. I think clearly they are trying to stoke fears to stop people from going out in public, to kind of uh, bring the economy to a screeching halt because it benefits them and their agenda. I'm not taking you anywhere you haven't already been before with this. I know it. You know it. But uh, when you see when you see video or uh, pictures like this, you got to you got to just tip of the cap. If you're ever looking for a way to beat a speeding ticket or a traffic violation, the picture that I just had sent to me that I just posted on my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, I will uh, put it on my public page at France Radio for you momentarily, or maybe during the next break, but. There's a guy sitting in a sitting in an SUV with a mask on, with the officer standing outside flipping through his little ticket flip book, and the uh, guy, the driver, holding up a sign saying, "I have coronavirus." That is just some flat out brilliance. That is, <laughs> is the 
is the officer going to demand that he roll down his window and give him his license and give him his registration and proof of insurance and exchange papers with him? Or is the officer going to say, y'all go have a good day. I'm going to give you a warning. See ya. Bye. Keep that window up. That it's Again, I know I can't do it justice verbally, but it's just hilarious uh, uh visually i'll i'll share it with you like i said on my social media like i said on my social media cuz the guy's got sunglasses on and he's got a you know a surgical mask on the sign says i have coronavirus and the officer just staring at him like uh it's obviously a fake it's fun it's it's hilarious so just we're going to start the day with a chuckle here and the reason I want to do that, of course, is because there isn't there isn't anything funny about what the media is doing. The mainstream media wants you to be scared to death, to go out in public, to talk to other people, to touch other people, uh, for the reasons that we have been describing. And they have pretty much made no bones about it. Uh, they want to may embellish the threat as much as they can. They want people staying inside. They want people not going to various events. They want schools closed. They want businesses closed. Um, they want people self-quarantining. That's a new term. And there's a good reason for that. As I said, there is a political reason for that. They are trying to harm the president. They are trying to help uh, somebody else get into power. And they're hurting the economy by way of the coronavirus, especially if you can manage to paint the president and his team as incompetent on dealing with the coronavirus at the same time. That, of course, is their, uh, their perfect scenario. So I bring that up to bring this up. President Trump is setting an example that I think everybody should be appreciative of. President Trump is setting aside his noted germophobia, and he, he is a, a self-admitted germaphobe. Um, he is setting all of those concerns aside to tell and show everybody, I'm not afraid, neither should you be. If we're practicing good hygiene habits, the way we should have been before coronavirus ever was, was, was mentioned simply because of flu and cold season. If we're practicing good habits, then, then we'll be fine anyway. As a matter of fact, according to the CDC, the latest numbers came out, uh, let me make sure this is dated this morning, uh, yesterday actually. CDC says flu has killed 20,000 Americans including 136 kids so far this season. You should be wearing masks and wearing gloves and not shaking hands and all of these other things for fear of of contracting the deadly flu already. But you haven't been what has been what has become very well known and acknowledged by many Americans on social media and in other places that is that people are realizing, <coughs> excuse me, they never noticed how many people don't wash their hands in public places. How many people go into the restroom, use it, and walk out checking themselves in the mirror but not washing their hands? It's become a kind of a meme. It's become kind of, kind of a thing. Like the American people just don't care. Suddenly, here comes coronavirus which has killed, I think, 12 people in America so far, compared to the 20,000 Americans who have been killed by flu, and suddenly we're scrubbing our hands uh, to within an inch of their lives. We're all over it. Again, I bring this up because I want to highlight and spotlight what President Trump has done. President Trump, 
There, there was an article back in 20, I guess it was just last year, 2019. This is from July. In Politico. And it's not the only one. I saw one in the Washington Post, and I saw a few others as well. But this particular one is called the Purell Presidency. Trump aides learn the president's real red line. A self-described germaphobe, the 45th president is strictly enforcing proper hygiene inside the White House and wherever else he goes. He, <coughs> excuse me, no, I do not have coronavirus. It's just a simple cough. Leave me alone. He asks visitors if they'd like to wash their hands in a bathroom near the Oval Office. He'll send a military doctor to help an aide caught coughing on Air Force One. And the first thing he often tells his body man upon entering the beast after shaking countless hands at campaign events is, give me the stuff. The stuff is an immediate squirt of Purell. Two and a half years into his presidency, President Donald Trump is solidifying his standing as the most germ-conscious man to ever lead the free world. His aversion to germs shows up in meetings at the White House, on the campaign trail, and at 30,000 feet. And everyone close to Trump knows the president's true red line. If you are the perpetrator of a cough or a sneeze or any kind of thing that makes you look sick, you get that look from the president. You get the scowl. You get the response of... He'll put a hand up in a gesture of, you should be backing away from him. You should be more considerate, and you should extricate yourself from that situation. The president's admitted germophobia has been a fixture throughout his career. From real estate deal rooms to casino floors, and now popping up in more and more public ways. Now, why am I bringing that up again? I'm bringing it up because of this news story. President Trump is shaking hands with everybody he sees publicly to demonstrate that even a germaphobe like uh, germaphobe like him is not panicking and and going to run and hide from coronavirus fears this headline from uh, or the story from Breitbart Breitbart rather President Donald Trump confidently shook the hands of Florida supporters on Monday, despite heightened fears in D.C. of the spread of coronavirus. The president landed in Orlando and walked over to a fence line to shake the hands of a group of cheering supporters before leaving the airport to attend a fundraiser. The president spoke about shaking hands during the town hall meeting or during a town hall meeting on Thursday night in Pennsylvania, noting that quote, "You can't be a politician and not shake hands." The bottom line is, he said, I shake anybody's hand now. I'm proud of it. There are people that I love. There are people that I want to take care of, end quote. Yes, the president continues to use hand sanitizer during his meetings with supporters. While we have asked all Americans to exercise common sense hygiene measures, we are conducting business as usual, says White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham. I want to remind the media once again to be responsible with all reporting. Vice President Pence made headlines after greeting Washington State Governor Jay Inslee and other officials with an elbow bump at the airport in uh, Tacoma, Washington on Thursday. American Conservative Union Chairman Matt Schlapp put himself in voluntary self-quarantine at his home on Monday after revealing he had come into incidental contact with an attendee at CPAC who tested positive for the virus. We talked about yesterday... Congressman Matt Gates of Florida and Doug Collins of Georgia also self-quarantining because they came in touch with uh, contact with the same people. They are not symptomatic, but they are just being responsible. So I just want to kind of highlight that the president is really, truly living by example. In other words, 
without the hypocrisy of a typical Democrat. You know, Bernie Sanders, who's typically screaming at everybody about climate change and what a threat it is and how we need to reduce our carbon footprint, but he operates three luxury homes. He keeps three luxury homes going at at the same time. He flies on private jets. He flies on private jets. He doesn't uh, go commercial. In other words, he has one of the largest carbon footprints of anybody in D.C., hypocrisy so my point to that is president trump isn't being a hypocrite he isn't on tv or in radio or on twitter telling you uh hey live your life don't be afraid to come in contact with other people go to the game go to the movies go to the grocery store go to dinner go to public places and don't be afraid of everything just wash your hands if you do see somebody that's coughing or sneezing stay six feet away from them standard good hygienic, CDC-approved practices during particularly infectious disease season. We have this disease season every year. It's called flu season or cold and flu season. Just practice good habits and don't be afraid of coronavirus particularly. Don't let the media influencers talk you into uh, being terrified of this. And as instead of being a hypocrite like Bernie... And so many others, this noted germ- germaphobe wants you to see him shaking hands with everybody. Not because he's a hero. Not because he's trying to be, you know, uh, above it all. He's just trying to say, don't stop doing what you do. I'm a politician now. I have to shake hands. I'm not going to not shake hands. I'm not going to not greet people. I'm not going to treat everybody like they're a disease carrier. And neither should you. I just find that fantastic. So I put a uh, Twitter poll up on my uh Twitter feed earlier this morning, and I'm going to re-post uh, uh, it, and I'm going to ask you to to participate in it if you are on Twitter. And this is what it says. Survey. This is obviously unscientific. Survey. Are you someone who has always shaken the hands of people you meet at work or in public? If so, are you still shaking hands now, or have you changed your behavior? President Trump is not changing his behavior despite his germophobia. So the three choices on my poll are, yes, I, yes, and I still shake hands. Number two is, I used to, but I don't anymore because of corona. And number three is, I never shook hands to begin with. There are a lot of people like Howie Mandel, of course, famous comedian, television personality, and so on and so forth. Howie Mandel is a germaphobe who will not shake hands. He fist bumps people. And then I think he purells after fist bumping. <laughs> uh, he's not taking any chances whatsoever. He doesn't want whatever you have coughed into your hands to be transferred to his hands. And that's fine. So are you? which of these categories are you in? I have always shaken hands, and I still do. I used to, but I don't anymore, at least not now with corona. Or I have never done it. I'm curious to see if behaviors are changing because of coronavirus. So I want you to answer that question on my Twitter page, which is France Radio on Twitter. F-R-A-N-T-Z, France Radio. That's number one. And number two, I want you to call me and tell me, not about your handshaking specifically. I'll do that with the poll. But are you changing your behavior in any measurable way due to coronavirus fears? Are you staying home at from things that you would have gone out to? Are you wiping things down that you didn't used to wipe down? I'll tell you one thing I've done. <clears throat> Grocery shopping over the weekend. Uh, went to uh, Giant Eagle to pick up a few things. Guess what I did? I pulled one of those um, uh, um, hand sanitizer sheets. You know the whatever you call them, the the clean sheets, whatever they are, um, antibacterial wipes, I guess. 
and I wiped down the handle of the shopping cart. Because I normally don't do that, but I did now because, okay, it's flu season and it's coronavirus season. Are you changing your behaviors in any measurable way due to coronavirus? I'd like to hear you at 216-901-0945 or 888-281-1110 right here on AM 1420, the answer. So, um, yeah, um, the media is trying to hurt people. The media is trying to cause a panic. And that is truly what uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky uh, is, is trying to point out. He's trying to call for some accountability here. It's why the president, I think, is going you know above and beyond to show everybody that you don't have to buy into the fear. You don't have to uh, change the way you live. You don't have to change your normal practices. And again, not everybody is a politician. Not everybody has to go out and shake hands the way he does. But he, whatever you do have to do, you should do. Don't let the media try to stop you. Again, here's a clip from Dr. Drew on CBS explaining why this is so So important. you've seen pandemics over the decades. Yeah. How does this one compare with everything? A bad flu season is 80,000 dead. We've got about 18,000 dead from influenza this year. We have 100 from corona. Mm-hmm. Which should you be worried about, influenza or corona? A hundred versus eighteen thousand. Right. It's not a trick question. And look, the, the, everything that's going on with the New York cleaning the subways and everyone using Clorox wipes and get your flu shot, which should be the other message. That's good. Yeah. That's a good thing. So I have no problem with the behaviors. What I have a problem with is the panic and the fact that businesses are getting destroyed and people's lives are being upended, not by the virus but by the panic. The panic must stop. And the press. They really I, I somehow need to be held accountable because they are hurting people. So where do you think the panic started? Like, what Besides the press, like what was the impetus in terms of mass hysteria? I, I saw it. There's a footage of me on a show called The Daily Blast Live mm-hmm. a month ago going, shouldn't we be scared about this? And me going, no, this, there's going to be this potential for panic here. Right. Shut up, everybody. Stop talking about it. I could see the panic brewing. And I could just see it the way the innuendo and the... And the Every every opportunity for drama by the press was was twisted in that direction. Let me give you an example. So the World Health Organization is out now saying the fatality rate from the virus is three point four percent. Right. Every every publication from the WHO says three point four percent, and we expect it to fall dramatically once we understand the full extent of the illness. No one ever reports the actual. Statement. Right. They, they go 3.4%. That's 10 times more than the whatever. Five times more than the flu virus. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a little more flu, probably. Yeah. Still not a bad flu. Right. Season. We're going to hear about more. So Dr. Drew is saying that, you know. Let's keep things in context. The media won't do it for us. They will not do this for us, so we have to do it ourselves. We have to make sure that we understand the context of the real threat and also uh, the fact that you know the media is trying to influence behaviors, and the influence they're trying to have is to keep people away from their regular lives, going to work, going to shop, going to, going to, uh, to play, going to do whatever it is that they want to do in an attempt to influence behavior because that behavior will have a negative impact on the country and thus the presidency. That is exactly what the goal here is and he's right they should be held accountable and again the president should be saluted for not repeat not allowing uh this disease and this threat to change his own behavior even though he himself has a bit of a problem as a germaphobe let me get a phone call in here before the bottom of the hour mark in fairview wants to talk about the coronavirus hi mark go ahead uh, 
Good morning, Bob. I was just sitting down having a cup of coffee and watch, I fly through a few of these shows and already on two of them. They have psychologists on now who are uh, explaining how to deal with the anxiety and stress in society towards this virus. So you see the degree that it's, gone, that it's gotten to. What are they saying? What are you hearing from them? You know, I you know, listen to them. You know, I, I was in there shaving. <laughs> so, uh, but but they, as I said, I see it, and they're you know they're just going on about you know basically psychologists and people people are uh, overreacting and I uh, will not saying that they're overreacting. Well, the reason but I asked anxiety. what they were saying, Mark, Mark, the reason I asked what you heard them saying is it's not necessarily bad for TV shows to put psychologists on if they're mm-hmm. being responsible, and they're coming on to say. Don't let your worst fears get the best of you. Don't let the panic being created by the media and other places get the best of you. Uh, just, you know, practice good, safe, hygienic habits and don't go buying masks and uh, wrapping yourself up in uh, hazmat suits and all the not going to work, et cetera, et cetera. So the psychology of it might actually be very important here because people have an irrational fear of things that mm-hmm. they don't understand. Bring in psychology. Well, I, did, I didn't, I didn't follow that. through the, the whole way. It just came on. I said, well, here we go. Here's another phase. But yeah. I want to make one more statement. Last week, I think you were talking with Todd, and uh, you uh, he brought something up, uh, some sporting event, and you mentioned about uh, how it was like three decades ago. Uh, I don't know if you call that or not. And no, because I don't you, know what you mean. Uh, what, what, oh, no, what no, he... Todd was talking to you about some sporting event that occurred like uh, thirty know, years what, ago. Okay, okay. What's oh. what's what's the point of it though? I mean, what, oh, the point of it is well, you made a slight. Maybe I'll be able to remember it, but what is it? Yeah, you, you made a slight reference about mm. how you couldn't believe it was thirty years ago when you kind of mentioned how time really flies and you were feeling slightly old and everything else. And mm. I just wanted to reassure, reassure you, Bob, that anybody who doesn't know who Walter Brennan is is not, I say, <laughs> not not old. And have a nice day. <laughs> Thank you, my man. I appreciate it. There you go, Mark. Mark uh, Mark did our Walter Brennan impersonation, which went right over my head uh, a few weeks back. Uh, I can't remember what that was 30 years ago either, but, uh, but yes, I do feel very, very old at times when we, when we look at uh, uh, the way these things have gone. All right, we're going to get a newscast here, and on the other side of the newscast, we're going to change the conversation completely. But it is going to be geared somewhat toward the election and the role that the African-American vote will play in the election. I'll explain why that matters with our guest, Stephen Lofton, who's joining us next on AM 1420 The Answer. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. I don't have a fever. When you Stop trying to project coronavirus upon me. I have a little post-nasal drip, a little coffee, and a little draining in the back of my throat that's caused me to cough a little bit. I've got a cough drop in. I do not have coronavirus. Derek, quit trying to put that on me. No, I'm fine. I am... Uh, I am uh, not going to give into the panic any more than anybody else should. All right, I want to pivot now away from coronavirus. I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about the election. I'm going to talk about the role of the black voter in the upcoming election. 
the African-American turnout, the African-American mindset. And to do that, I want to talk to somebody who has a very unique insight into the African-American mind. He is an African-American, first of all. Second of all, he has spent an awful lot of time writing about this sort of thing. His first book was called The Hidden Dimension, an inside view on the reality of inner-city African-America. His newest book is called The Black Problem in America, and it ain't racism nor the cops. That's right, ain't is in the title of the book, and I love that. Even as an English teacher, I will forgive poetic license, because that is, and literary license, because that is a a great way to say it. His name is Stephen Lofton, the author who joins us now to talk uh, about race in America and race in elections on AM 1420, The Answer. Stephen, good to have you back on our program. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Thank you, Bob. Stephen Lofton, tell people a little bit about yourself. You have a very interesting uh, experience. I won't call it unique to people who are raised in urban settings, to African Americans, particularly raised in urban settings. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay, I am a uh, product of uh, the black inner city, uh, whereby uh, black society, uh, unfortunately, is uh, uh, un-American in nature. And it uh, calls for uh, the destruction of the black inner city. Uh, you will find uh, from sea to shining sea. Uh, my leadership has caused for the total breakdown of law on the civil side of the system, uh, killing those uh, beneath them. Um, you're from Los Angeles, just for those who don't know, right? That's the inner city you're talking about, inner city L.A. Uh, that's correct. I was initially born in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, which was a closed society uh, uh, before my uh, parents uh, brought the family to Los Angeles, uh, opting for a more open society, and all hell seemed to uh, break loose. Um, you can say that again Um, Stephen the um, first of all your your second book which I'm not finished with yet the one we're talking about the black problem in America I do have and I'm reading and I'm probably about just past halfway point I guess but I wanted to talk to you Uh, you you are a very very interesting writer and you are a very detailed explainer this book for those who are wondering is 637 pages uh, so Stephen likes to really get in depth and explain the points and the issues and the topics that he covers here. But I'm going to ask you to summarize somewhat here. The black problem in America ain't racism, you say. Now, as I listen, and we tie this to current events, Stephen, to Joe Biden tell the story, to Bernie Sanders tell the story, to virtually every American Democrat tell the story, uh, racism is the problem, and that white supremacy and white privilege continue to marginalize people of color like yourself and we are the reasons why you don't have everything that you and i mean when i say you we can mean that personally or just as a uh, as a general statement of your race don't have the things that you want to have in this country how do you respond to people who oversimplify the black problem in america and say the problem is simply historic and systemic racism well the uh narrative of the political left and Democratic Party uh, is uh, is fraudulent in terms of race and black folk. 
America is a uh, provincial uh, society uh, where every ethnicity uh, first protects itself. Uh, black folk are not provincialistic, and because of that, um, there's there's no uh, economic growth or anything happening beneficial to the masses that exist uh, within the inner city. Uh, I sense that uh, Martin Luther King's uh, philosophy of integration uh, caused us to uh, step way out of uh, on a limb uh, in un-American, unprovincialistic practices. Um, America is a provincial society, and the uh, nature of uh, integration uh, uh, calls uh, the best trained amongst us uh, to flee our own kind uh, to integrate, and uh, not enough of our trained folk remained uh, within the inner city uh, to build. Um, also, uh, uh, that integration uh, philosophy, uh, to me, was un-American uh, because every other ethnicity within America looks at integration only in terms of the money supply, and that's why business and economic growth uh, builds within uh, the communities of uh, all other ethnicities within America. We are talking with Stephen Lofton. <clears throat> Stephen B. Lofton is an author. His latest book is The Black Problem in America, and it ain't racism nor the cops. Um, let me ask you this. Um, how do you feel, Stephen, about the current leadership in the black community that is urging people to turn away from some of the mentality that you talked about, and you talked about the myths and some of the fraud being perpetrated by liberal Democrats in this country, uh, committed upon black people, but there's a, there's a kind of a newer wave of young black leaders that are, that are perpetrating, or not perpetrating, but instituting, trying to bring about what's called Blexit, and that is the black exit from the Democrat Party. Just last night, I sat in for Larry Elder and did his uh, show. He's normally there where you are in Los Angeles, but he was in Florida at a Blexit event in Fort Lauderdale advocating for the black American movement away from liberal Democrat politicians who have done nothing for them. How do you feel about that new movement and the leadership that is behind it? I'm thrilled to see that development uh, because the uh, Democratic Party has uh, been destructive uh, to uh, the black inner city for it uh, attempted to use welfare uh, to solve all black problems when black men uh, needed work. And uh, our the black society is not referred to as distaffed uh, for nothing, uh, woman's domain. I am, again, I am thrilled to see uh, a black folk leaving uh, the Democratic Party for the GOP uh, because its philosophy is uh, uh, more uh, conducive uh, to our needs. So I am thrilled uh, uh, by the uh, blacks that seem to be leaving the uh, uh, Democratic Party. It's a good move, great move. Stephen, um, 
in your book, well, actually, let me stay here. Let me stay on the politics of it for a moment. And then I want to go to your family, and I want to talk about the role of the black father um, in, in the black experience in this country that you talk about in your book. But, but since we just did the Democrat Party, let's do the Republican Party. Let's do Donald Trump. Donald Trump was called a friend to the black community for virtually his entire public life, endorsed, supported, and awarded, and cited, and credentialed by some of the black leadership in the uh, black community and in the media, anyway, of the black community. The Sharptons and Jacksons and and other people really liked Donald Trump and his his relationship with African Americans, particularly in New York City. Until he became a Republican candidate for president. Then suddenly all of those same people who loved him for his relationships with black people said that he's a racist. He's a white supremacist. He's a white nationalist. He's a Nazi. He's Hitler. How uh, how do you as a black man speaking on the black experience in America, how do you understand and explain what has happened here with President Trump? A lot of that is... uh promoted uh, by uh, the political left Democratic Party as well as what uh, our president described as the fake news media. I believe it's all about a power play for those uh, lifetime politicians uh, in Washington uh, to uh, hold on to power and get rich at the expense of American people. And... uh, our president intends to stop that type of uh, uh, operation there in Washington to make it more conducive uh, to the needs of the American people. Um, so how do, how do you and people like Larry Elder, uh, he's, of course, in a much more high-profile position, but I think it's still very similar, how do you convince other African Americans to see what you are describing, to see the fraud that has been perpetrated by one party that pretends to be in the corner of black America, and a guy that is called a racist, called a, a Klansman, et cetera, et cetera, who actually is doing things for black America? How do you get more black people to see this? I guess maybe one way is to have them read your book, right? That's one way, and uh, what... Uh the problem is uh, uh, to fight uh, that sort of uh, false narrative uh, that they, my uh, counterparts believe in is a product of uh, decades of uh, deception. And uh, also, uh, unlike many of them, they're so busy struggling for survival on a daily uh, basis, they were unable to... Uh, uh, a benefit from a step back uh, to actually take a look at the situation within the inner city, political, social, and religious. And uh, unfortunately, uh, too many of uh, my kind uh, continue to be uh, bamboozled by the false narrative of the Democratic uh, Party and uh, uh, political left within this country. Stephen uh, Lofton is my guest and author. Uh, His uh, second book is The Black Problem in America, and it ain't racism nor the cops. That's the actual uh, title of this book. Uh, Let me ask you about the black experience from the viewpoint of the family. Um, Larry, again, i I sorry to keep repeating or uh, referring to Larry Elder, but he is on a nightly basis 
and in speaking engagements all across the country, he is constantly beating the drum about the role of the black father in uh, the black experience and the fact that so many of them are absentee fathers. Uh, they run when they find out that they've impregnated, impregnated someone or they get themselves thrown in jail for this reason or that reason. But the black father is notably absent from the lives of primarily. Not that young black girls are different, but young black males need that male role model to, uh, uh, to find their way. Stephen, give me the experience you had. Tell me about your father. Tell me about your upbringing in that regard. I uh, thank God uh, in that uh, uh, being raised by the uh, state of California, uh, those short periods I was allowed to be uh, with my father uh, provided me, uh, who provided me great influence. Uh, opened uh, my eyes up to a lot of things uh, that exist in the world around me. Uh, mm-hmm. Without him, uh, I think I would have had greater, a lot greater difficulty of uh, developing uh, into manhood. Uh, Larry Elder is absolutely correct uh, in his view on the black family and the importance of the uh, uh, father and the black man. Uh, in the uh, growth and development of young black males. Um, I uh, am aware of uh, uh, Larry Elder, and uh, he is uh, from Los Angeles. Uh, if I, my memory serves me correctly, he, ser- he uh, uh, refers to himself as the sage of South Central Los Angeles. Always has. Uh, and uh, my family had uh, tried to reach him uh, several times because of uh, the same views that uh, uh, we understand. Mm-hmm. However, we are just little people and uh, 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 too small to, for Larry Elder, Elder to uh, recognize as uh, being worthy or of value uh, uh, in anything because we're so well, I, I think you guys share this you know many of the same experiences and you share many of the same viewpoints obviously he is on a different plane he is a much bigger uh figure than than i am certainly I, that's why i'm privileged to guest host his program when i can but you are saying some of the same things he says in his various platforms through your book or through your books plural that's the reason i wanted you to kind of embellish and talk about a little bit more uh about that black experience but Stephen, i need to get a break here uh i've got a few minutes on the other side of this break i want to ask you about black voters and about what you expect to see this november in this presidential election and what message you have for your fellow african-american voters uh hang with me through this time out here and we'll finish this conversation with stephen lofton right after this look up here i'm in heaven i've got scars that can't be seen All right, 9.55, so I've got about five minutes left with Stephen Lofton, author 
of uh, his second book now, which is called The Black Problem in America, and it ain't racism nor the cops. Stephen writes in great detail about his life, his upbringing, his parents uh, who were fired from their jobs as teachers and replaced by college graduates without a reason, um, their inability to get any justice, uh, the fact that uh, the Loftons were arrested, uh, Stephen and his siblings all shuffled through foster care, bad homes, terrible uh, you know, drug activity, criminal activity all around them, and the lack of any kind of compassion or assistance from the black community. Uh, that is the problem. It is not white people, he says, and he writes. It is not the police. The problem must be corrected within the black community. Stephen, with all of that having been said and what you write about, um, let's turn to the governmental element of this. Um, and this upcoming election. We all know that African Americans vote in to the tune of around 92 to 96, 97% for Democratic candidates for president virtually every election. President Trump got 8% of the vote uh, back in 2016. It's possible that he could get more of it this time around so that perhaps the African American experience, which is as I described, uh, you know, in your case, uh, a little bit different. For the young black people today, young children who are hoping for a better experience as they go forward, do you think that the African-American minds are opening up to the idea that maybe Donald Trump is indeed the best thing for them in their future? Well, I'm uh, aware of the uh, Brexit uh, move. Uh, I am involved uh, uh, in my neighborhood and on through social media in terms of uh, uh, supporting uh, that uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Um, to my understanding, it's just 18% of uh, blacks uh, go GOP come November. Uh, Trump uh, will, uh, of course, win the election. And I am looking for uh, President Trump uh, to win by a landslide uh, because I believe or sense uh, that the uh, American people have become uh, tired, uh, uh, upset, and uh, dismayed uh, by the uh, antics, especially of the, uh, our Democratic Party Congress, and the uh, attempted soft coup against the uh, President of the United States uh, in what looks like a, um, a, a, a move saying, well, to hell with the American people. And I'm looking uh, 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 for Trump uh, to uh, our, our president uh, to uh, be reelected come November. And uh, just 18% of uh, blacks vote GOP, uh, President Trump is a shoo-in for re-election. Yeah, I don't even think uh, it needs to be that much. I think if he goes from 8% to 12 or 13 or 14%, I think it'll be a landslide. Uh, and, and I think that's possible. 18 might be a little bit of a reach. I don't know. But last thing for you, Stephen, I, I mentioned you and your eight siblings. You all had similar experiences, not identical, but similar. Do any of them feel the same way you do? about, well, what you write about, about the black problem in America and about the need to embrace a different ideology? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, uh, because of the uh, trauma, uh, a lot of the trauma they experienced uh, in their growth and development, uh, 
my uh, most of my siblings don't want to uh, revisit uh, that uh, experience through uh, discussing the uh, situation of black folk in America uh, for what caused them to relieve, relive the uh, tragedies of their earlier existence. Well, that is certainly understandable. I really appreciate that you are willing to look back on this and retell the story and talk about, again, not just what happened in the past, but what it means for your future, for the future of black Americans, and quite frankly, just for the future of Americans, because it is all intricately tied together. Uh, Stephen Lofton, again, the book is called uh, The Black Problem in America. It's on Amazon right now. I'm staring at the page. You should order it. You should buy it. You should read it. Again, it's 637 pages of very, very deep insight and uh, history of this black man and his family and what he endured and what he knows has to happen in this country to make the experience better for others coming up behind him. Stephen Lofton, The Black Problem in America. Get that book. Stephen, thank you for coming on and sharing your experiences with us. I truly appreciate it, and I wish you all the very best, sir. Thank you so much, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. All right, 10 o'clock, let's get uh, out and come back in. We're going to talk to, uh, well, a uh, um, guy who's got another different kind of black experience in America, and he's always willing to share it and write about it. Uh, not so much in book form for this. He is a writer for the National Review, and, of course, he's our good friend, Peter Kersenow. Peter Kersenow will join us next on AM 1420, The Answer. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 